Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 255 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're going to discuss diet-related inflammation. Inflammation is a normal defense mechanism that protects the host from infection and other insults. It initiates pathogen killing as well as tissue repair processes and helps to restore homeostasis at infected or damaged sites. Inflammation has long been known to be an important aspect of chronic diseases like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and many types of cancer. While a number of triggers of inflammation, such as bacteria, viruses, and tissue damage have been well characterized, also metabolic stress, only recently have the food that people eat been investigated for driving inflammation. The Dietary Inflammatory Index was developed to provide a quantitative means for assessing the role of the diet in relation to health outcomes ranging from blood concentrations of inflammatory markers and linking them to chronic diseases. To monitor inflammation in a meaningful way, the markers used must be valid. They must reflect the inflammatory processes under study, and they must be predictive of future health statuses. This is an area of active research, and in this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we'll discuss the relationship between what we eat and inflammation, as well as how diet-related inflammation affects health. On the other side of this podcast, we have the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, I uh, just finished up some training and uh, ready to go. Are you adequately inflamed? I imagine that there is some physiologically appropriate inflammation contributing to my uh, adaptation from that training session. Well, let's hope that it's not physiologically inappropriate levels of inflammation. Otherwise, I won't see you next week. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> okay, so what's the first thing that pops to your head when I say diet and inflammation? Just like word association. I would say there are two things. The first is the never-ending seed oil debate around <laughs> effects on inflammation, which we've talked about a ton before. And then the other would be a more legitimate uh, concern of like food-induced Aller food allergy or like uh, food-induced anaphylaxis, like somebody with a severe life-threatening peanut allergy or something like that, like the effects that that could have on somebody. Those would be the main two things that I think of. Yeah, I automatically go to allergies, right? And I'm like, all right, is somebody's mouth swelling or somebody getting like problems with digestion or, you know, you know, even swelling of the proximal GI tract, something like that. And then I kind of devolve into claims of this food is inflammatory and this food is anti-inflammatory. And I'm like, source? Mm-hmm. Just citation, anybody? So we're going to discuss that on this podcast. Uh, through the lens of the diet inflammatory index, this is a codification of basically the entire existing data set we have on how food affects various parameters of inflammation and uh, biomarkers thereof. So we got to discuss what inflammation is, what are some common biomarkers that have been tested, and then kind of go into this diet inflammatory index. So first off, what is inflammation? Inflammation is a biological response of the immune system in response to a number of different factors or triggers such as pathogens, damaged cells, toxic compounds, radiation, and so on. It's characterized at the tissue level by redness, swelling, heat, pain, loss of tissue function. Do you remember the – it's Latin, right? It's like rubor, calor. Calor, yeah. Classic. What, what, first, are the other, what are the other three? Like first year of med school or first week of med school type stuff. <laughs> it's like the first slide you see like after, you know, conflict of interest type stuff and like professionalism training. It's like, hey, this is inflammation. <laughs> um, so in any case, inflammation can be acute or chronic. And acute inflammation is sort of the initial response of the body to an inflammatory trigger, many of the things we, we mentioned before. And then chronic inflammation or prolonged inflammation involves a progressive shift in not only the types of cells present at the site of inflammation, but also like simultaneously destruction, the simultaneous destruction and healing of the tissue due to the ongoing inflammatory process. And this may become pathological due to loss of certain regulatory processes. So like you know, runaway sort of inflammation. And if it becomes excessive, there can be irreparable damage to host tissues and disease can occur. So Austin, when you're treating patients in the hospital, do you discuss inflammation as part of their disease process? And if so, how do you do it? Uh, sometimes. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the most simple and most common kind of inflammation that I might see is somebody who simply has a fever. Uh, that's a manifestation of inflammation. We also have a lot of other biomarkers that we look at, biomarkers referring to blood tests. And I think that you know, generally when I see a patient who has evidence of inflammation from an internal medicine standpoint, not 
trauma-related inflammation like the, a, a fractured bone, although sometimes I might see something like that. But uh, the most common reasons why I might see it would be an infection of any variety. You can have bacteria, viruses, fungal infections, all sorts of uh, uh, different types of in, uh, infections that can lead to inflammation. There are various kinds of autoimmune conditions where uh, people's um, immune system is attacking their own body. There's even a related uh, category of diseases called auto-inflammatory diseases, all sorts of complicated reasons why people can have inflammation inappropriately in their body. And then finally, certain kinds of cancers uh, can lead to, uh, can manifest with inflammation. There are a few other, you know, more esoteric things, but in general, it's really common for me to see patients who have evidence of inflammation and I have to narrow down from the big three categories of something like an infection, an autoimmune or inflammatory condition, and then uh, malignancy or cancer. And so, you know, the extent to which I discuss that with patients is often not super detailed in terms of the uh, inflammation itself, but much more so um, the how, how that is cluing me into different possible diagnoses and how we're going to approach an answer. Yeah. Most of the conditions that you see or read about that end in itis, you know, have some sort of inflammatory component. And inflammation is, you know, a very common pathophysiological factor in most conditions that you uh, see. Uh, that all that being the case, there's kind of a there's a difference between like diet related inflammation and disease related inflammation, not necessarily in the underlying mechanisms, although that can be different for sure, but the magnitude in change of some of these biomarkers that we're going to discuss. So first off, like what is a biomarker? And you you know referenced referenced it nicely, saying calling it a blood test, but it's a characteristic that is objectively measured, so via a blood test or some other sort of sample, and is evaluated as an indicator of normal biological processes, pathogenic processes, or even pharmacologic responses to an intervention. So that's just the kind of broad definition of a biomarker. But clear recommendations on which biomarkers to use and how to interpret patterns of biomarkers and their changes in response to disease or response to a medication or lifestyle intervention or something like that are lacking, particularly as it relates to diet. So we're kind of going to discuss this and then uh, look at the evidence and see if we can, can make heads or tails. Um, Austin, in the hospital, what are the, like the most common sort of tests you use to sort of monitor inflammation? Uh, the first would be taking vital signs and looking at somebody's temperature, for example. Even though fevers, when somebody does have inflammation, are not typically continuous, they tend to kind of break and re you know relapse and remit. But a temperature, and then as far as um, blood tests go, I'd be looking at people's uh, white blood cell count can be elevated. Their platelet count can be elevated. Um, there are other measures like ferritin, which we actually talked about a little bit on our iron-related uh, podcast. That can be really elevated in situations of inflammation. And there are other blood tests like uh, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR, C-reactive protein, CRP. Um, and then if there's a particular organ that I suspect is involved, then there, there may or may not be, depending on the organ, like specific tests to that organ that might indicate how much inflammation is going on. So for example, if somebody has myocarditis inflammation in the heart, there are going to be specific blood tests that will clue me into that. If somebody has hepatitis inflammation in the liver, that will be specific blood tests that clue me into that. Um, so there are some general ones like vital signs, temperature, looking at the person, are they sweating and <laughs> look like they're inflamed, uh, uh, you know, significantly, um, as well as white blood cell count, platelets, things like that. And then there are more organ-specific ones or disease-specific ones, depending on what condition uh, the patient might have. Yeah. As far as those general ones, I think the two biggest ones that are, you know, commonly assessed in the hospital tend to be CRP and ESR, which you alluded to. So we'll start with the ESR. Now, these are not specific to any particular disease, and it really can't distinguish acute from a chronic sort of inflammation. Um, but as you talked about before we started recording, there can be differences between the two tests themselves, ESR and CRP, that uh, actually clue you in on, ooh, something interesting is going on here. Uh, so we'll start with erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Now, this is the rate at which red blood cells settle in plasma of an anticoagulated blood sample, which is a fancy way of saying they take a blood sample, a blood draw, and they see like how quickly do the red blood cells actually settle uh, in that test tube. And it's measured in millimeters traveled vertically per hour. Uh, various factors can impa impact this rate of fall and some conditions accelerate it, whereas others inhibit it. Um, it's This is actually like a, a indirect measure of fibrinogen, which is another sort of acute phase reactant. We'll talk about that soon, but that's another sort of marker of inflammation, but also depends on the red blood cell size, the red blood cell shape, and how many you have. Um, it's elevated significantly with infection. And so like in outpatients, so outside the hospital, 
people with infection, about a third of them have ESR levels greater than 100 millimeters per hour. But also things like cancer and different inflammatory disorders can are common in the outpatient setting that can increase ESR if it's being measured. Um, there are other things that actually modify ESR. So the uh, female sex, for example, uh, anemia. So you not, don't have enough red blood cells, pregnancy, kidney disease, obesity, uh, smoking, even a high room temperature can all sort of modify the, uh, ESR that you get from the test. And, um, on the other side, things like heart failure, muscle was wasting, abnormal uh, shape and size of red blood cells, low room temperature, having a short tube itself, all of these things can also kind of modify the sort of laboratory value you get. Um, effectively, though, with infections or other sorts of sources of inflammation, inflammatory triggers, you get what's called rouleau, which is when the red blood cells kind of stack together. Um, and effectively, this generates a higher erythrocyte sedimentation rate, higher ESR, due to the positive changes, charges from uh, uh, various proteins neutralizing the negative charges on the red blood cells. So that's a little chemistry sort of, you know, twud for you to repeat at the bar later and sound real smart. So effectively, these changes in charges make the red blood cells stack up, and so they fall faster, and so you get a higher ESR. The cutoffs here um, are... Uh, kind of, they change based on age. So for men under the age of 50, it's less than 15. That's kind of a normal ESR. For women under the age of 50, it's less than 20. If you're a man and you're over the age of 50, it's less than 20. And then if you're a woman over the age of 50, it's less than 30. But there is no sort of like minimum clinical, clinically important difference. Uh, some people refer to ESR and how it changes over time as like the degree of sickness. So it's very, very high and then it gets lower. You're like, ooh, they should be doing a little bit better, but that's not always the case. And Austin, you probably have some interesting stories from not only residency, but also your, you know, since you've been out being an attending where somebody's ESR is kind of funky and uh, <laughs> a student that you're teaching or whatever goes, look, their ESR went down and you go, why, why do I care? Yeah. Yeah. It's just inflammation is so, so common. And this test is just affected by so many different kinds that, you know, it, it can be very challenging to interpret, uh, particularly in the short term. If you have somebody with a long term inflammatory condition or say they have like a chronic infection and it starts out really high and gradually it comes all the way down to normal, you can feel better about that. But when it's a bit elevated and there's kind of the numbers bouncing around, there's not really much that you can do with that. It is quite helpful at the extremes. So when I, you know, you mentioned an example of, you know, patients who have an ESR of over 100, like that definitely gets my attention over 100, over 120, that like significantly narrows down the list of things that could be going on. But this is not a test that I would suggest, like, you know, just go like and test talked, it, bro. We've, we've talked a lot about people just going and getting their own tests. I would not advise you to just go and pull an ESR because <laughs> good luck interpreting it. Um, it can be very, it can be very challenging without a lot of context. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like for people with like chronic inflammatory conditions, if there's a substantial change one way or the other, you can maybe put more stock in that. But if I just got my ESR tested, for example, and it was like 25 and I said, Austin, my ESR is 25. What do I do? And you're like, why did you get it tested? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's most helpful when it's super, super high or when it's like very low uh, in between, it can be very challenging to interpret. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the more common ones tested in the hospital. The other one that's probably the most common is CRP, C-reactive protein. Now, this is a type of acute phase reactant, and, which basically means that despite its name, it also accompanies chronic as well as acute inflammatory states like infection, trauma, autoimmune disorders, certain cancers, and so on. There can be positive or negative acute phase reactants. Positive uh, acute phase reactants means the thing goes up. The biomarker goes up. Negative acute phase reactants means it goes down. And this is not a new concept. We've actually talked about this a couple times before. Here we're here we're paying a little bit more attention to the things that go up, like the ESR or the CRP or people's white blood cell count or you know whatever. But we've actually talked about several negative acute phase reactants before when we've talked about how when people are sick or they have inflammation, their vitamin D levels tend to go down, for example, or when they're sick or they have inflammation, testosterone levels tend to go down. Those are examples or albumin goes down. Those are a few different blood markers that actually tend to decrease when people have uh, inflammation. So that's kind of the opposite side of the, the coin here. Yeah. Now these are all physiological or biochemical changes but they can also be accompanied by behavioral changes. So for example, there's like anorexia uh, related to anemia of chronic disease and also other like muscle wasting diseases, which is like a behavioral manifestation of some of these changes. So it's all much more complicated than like C number on paper. That must be this thing that we're investigating. Um, so in talking about CRP, again, C-reactive protein a little bit more in depth, there are both pro and anti-inflammatory actions. So when I say pro-inflammatory, I mean inflammation goes up, and then there's anti-inflammatory actions, means inf inflammation goes down. Um, 
CRP is mostly involved in the recognition and elimination of pathogens. So things like bacteria, viruses, fungal stuff, but also necrotic tissue and so on. A normal level though of CRP is not truly known. Uh, current data kind of estimates it to be somewhere around this formula, which is basically your age over 50 for men or age over 50 for women plus 0.6. Uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, effectively works out to be somewhere around 0.3 milligrams per deciliter for about 70 to 90% of the population. Um, but the units, there's no like uniformity for units. And so people would be like, wait, that's a really low number. My, my CRP was much higher. And it's like, yeah, I got to check the units. So it could be reported as either milligrams per deciliter or milligrams per liter. So in general, a CRP level of one milligram per deciliter uh, or 10 milligrams per liter, anything higher than that represents clinically significant inflammation, whereas 0.3 to 1 milligrams per deciliter or 3 to 10 milligrams per liter represents low-grade inflammation. So that's kind of the range that we're talking about here. For reference, bacterial infections, um, you know, people have CRP levels higher than 10 milligrams per deciliter, so much, much higher or greater than 100 milligrams per liter. That's about 80% of patients with the bacterial infection. Um, and then some people will start thinking about what about HSCRP? That's got to be a different test, right? All that stands for is high sensitivity C-reactive protein. It's still the same C-reactive protein that's being tested, but the assay or test itself is a little more sensitive to distinguish very low levels of CRP. I don't, wouldn't recommend people going out and just testing their <laughs> CRP just to get a number. It's like, what would you, what would you do with that? If I told you that my ESR or my CRP level was 0.4 milligrams per <laughs> deciliter, you'd be like, okay, well, again, why did you test it? Yeah, I, I agree in general. Uh, there are some, you know, some data in the context of cardiovascular disease research where people can um, uh, measure a high sensitivity CRP level. And this seems to, you know, be predictive of future risk. And there are now emerging some interventions that, that can actually directly treat inflammation and reduce cardiovascular risk. But this is not something that's being applied broadly to the general population. It's much more limited to like, especially high risk cardiovascular disease patients, people who've had heart disease issues. Um, definitely, there are plenty of people who tell you go out and get it checked. As far as like, if you have some, you know, quote unquote, systemic inflammation based on a mildly elevated high sensitivity CRP, you know, most of the recommendations for you are going to be the same as they would have been had you not gotten that test checked. In other words, all the seven health priorities that we have in our uh, in our article on the website in terms of diet, body composition, physical activity, sleep, you know, not uh, using or abusing substances, not smoking, all, all sorts of other like, you know, deleterious uh, things for your health. That would be the absolute you know, number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things to do if you were to even get it checked and notice that it was a bit elevated. And only if all of that was flawless would I then, and you had, you know, no other symptoms, would I then be like really curious as far as why you might have a persistent elevation. So that's kind of the, the short story on that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also just to note that CRP levels do change with exercise. Now, when we led into this, you were like, oh, I think I'm appropriately inflamed. And so you might think, oh, well, that means that his CRP, his C-reactive protein is higher. But in fact, it looks like exercise actually decreases C-reactive protein levels in and of itself. Uh, and exercise that's associated with concomitant weight loss seems to decrease CRP levels even more, particularly for individuals carrying uh, excess body fat. So in general, I would not actually expect that your CRP levels right now are significantly higher outside of like if you sweated during the uh, uh, activity, you might just be concentrated a little bit. But otherwise, I would expect it to be lower. Yeah, there are tons of and and there are tons of different things that select more can more selectively increase your ESR or more selectively increase your CRP, and there can be discordance between the two. And all of this just adds even more to the complexity of trying to interpret these things, especially if you don't have a a clinical context around it that led you to order these tests in the first place. All right, so that's the story on ESR and CRP. Um, next uh, biomarker we're going to talk about is tumor necrosis factor alpha, also. Uh, abbreviated TNF-alpha. Now, this is a cytokine, it's a protein that is produced by white blood cells uh, and due to the body's natural immune system response. If an individual has like an autoimmune disorder, such as rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis, this protein may become elevated as the immune system is attacking healthy cells or other body parts like joints or skin, for example, uh, by mistake. 
it's conserved among species like human TNF is 80% homologous to that of the mouse, for example. Uh, in any case, with respect to exercise, physical exercise does induce muscle damage and nonspecific, a nonspecific inflammatory response, which is manifested by elevated concentrations of pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha. Uh, this is usually a short-term change that typically is reduced with additional training. Um, so for example, TNF-alpha itself, uh, if it's released from like a disease process, for example, increases another biomarker we'll talk about called IL-6. Uh, but IL-6 can also go up from exercise in a TNF-independent pathway. Actually, just muscle contraction seems to increase IL-6, but that's actually favorable. So again, all of this stuff is relatively complicated. But from exercise, if you're trying to figure out like what does exercise do to TNF-alpha, uh, TNF alpha tends to actually go down um, long term and then uh, effectively exercise related challenges. There seems to be less perturbation of any of these markers as people become more and more trained. The interesting stuff is when you compare like a very well-trained individual or a group of well-trained individuals to like untrained folks and give them a sort of workout, the people who are untrained tend to have more robust sort of changes to these inflammatory markers, whereas those who are pretty well-trained seem to have far smaller changes. And that's just a, a product of training and kind of getting used to it. it just doesn't cause as much sort of stress. Austin, anything else that you want to talk about TNF-alpha? Do you actually measure this in the hospital? I do not. This is almost never measured, uh, in at least in general practice. I don't know if there's a role for it in like niche subspecialty situations, but yeah, no. I assume it's mostly research, mostly research oriented and, and uh, petri dish type stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next uh, sort of acute phase reactant or biomarker of inflammation that we're going to talk about is fibrinogen. Now, this is made in the liver, and its major role is in blood clotting to deal with damage. Fibrinogen is a positive acute phase reactant, meaning it goes up. It increases in the setting of inflammation and increasing erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR. So there are normalized levels, but as far as like tracking inflammation with people in the hospital or, or otherwise, fibrinogen changes are kind of less sensitive to that is, is kind of my takeaway. It's like if you were really trying to measure inflammation in the hospital, fibrinogen would not be the thing to track because it doesn't change as quickly as some of the other things. That's just if you were really trying to monitor somebody's inflammation level. Yeah, I don't use this at all for monitoring inflammation. I do measure fibrinogen, though, in the context of bleeding and clotting-related problems, but not so much for inflammation. Yeah, because you want to make sure if somebody's not able to clot or if they're clotting too much, you're like, yo, why? Yeah, and I might have to give somebody fibrinogen if they don't have enough because they're bleeding for various reasons. So, yep. totally. The last biomarker we're going to talk about, and again, there are plenty that have been investigated with respect to the diet, but this is IL-6. And the reason I included this is because a number of papers that were used to sort of make this diet inflammatory index uh, also measure IL-6, and it gets it gives us a chance to talk about myokines, which I think are fascinating. So during exercise, IL-6 is produced by a TNF-independent pathway, I said that earlier, uh, and it stimulates the appearance of anti-inflammatory cytokines and the inhibition of production of TNF-alpha. So effectively, there's anti-inflammatory effects of exercise due to IL-6. That being said, during disease, IL-6 goes up by a TNF-dependent pathway, and it does stimulate inflammation. So for elevated IL-6 levels, it kind of matters how you got there. And I think this gives us a chance to briefly discuss, like, what is a myokine and why is this kind of cool? So Austin, do you want to take people through, like, the concept of myokines and why they're so cool? Sure. Although I'm not an expert in these things, but my uh, understanding of them is that they're kind of like hormones that are secreted from muscle, particularly in response to muscular contraction. And so muscle is not something that most people think of as like a hormone secreting organ or as an endocrine organ. But by what that means is that muscle can have wide ranging effects across the body by a bunch of mechanisms. Most people recognize that like, yeah, exercise and using your muscles is good for you. Of course, there's a variety of different ways by which it is good for you, aside from just improving your you know, physical strength and physical independence. It has metabolic activity in terms of taking up glucose and fatty acids and burning those that has a variety of health benefits. But it turns out that muscle itself, when it's being used and contracted, secretes some of these molecules that are called myokines. And these molecules can travel to distant sites throughout the body and have distant actions. And these can be, you know, most for the most part beneficial uh, for people. Now, IL-6 is something that has traditionally been thought of as a pro-inflammatory kind of cytokine, a cytokine referring to one of these kind of hormone-type signaling molecules. And so the, the 
early on, my understanding is that the concern was that when we saw IL-6 go up with exercise, people were like, well, that's evidence of, you know, inflammation from muscle damage. That's why, uh, you know, this is all happening. But as it turns out that um, when they compared, you know, concentric and eccentric exercise, exercise that basically tended to cause more muscle damage versus less, it didn't really seem to have the impact that you would expect. And so it seemed more so, not so much related to muscle damage itself, but actually just muscle use and, and, and activity leading to the secretion of this signaling molecule. And then this goes off and does a whole bunch of things. And I'm not, uh, similarly not an IL-6 expert. There are certainly a lot of inflammatory conditions that I see and, and am involved in the treatment of where IL-6 is for sure playing a very significant role um, medically. But even outside of that, when people are exercising and training, their muscles are probably cranking out IL-6 that's conferring a bunch of health benefits to them. So that's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, just that uh, like sort of TNF alpha independent pathway is just fascinating. And like the muscle is actually producing its own IL-6 to provide like a net anti-inflammatory effect. And so people view exercise, they're like, well, yeah, there's some sort of inflammatory thing going on at, right after you exercise. And that's all true. But like the net effect, if you were kind of looking at long-term, what does exercise do to sort of body-wide inflammation? And in general, it reduces inflammation body-wide. And IL-6 is one of the sort of mechanisms by which that happens. And we call those myokines because the muscles is actually like an endocrine organ, which is cool. Yeah. However, if you could you know, a lot of people think of inflammation as it has this negative connotation. If you could eliminate inflammation or like suppress it, you would also likely eliminate adaptation to training. And so, or like healing or recovery from an injury or any of these sorts of things. So, you know, inflammation has, uh, ha there's, there's two sides to that coin when it is properly deployed and regulated and then turned back down when it's done, it can do a lot of great things for us when it is uncontrolled, unchecked, persistent, um, uh, uh, then, then it can obviously wreak, wreak some of the worst havoc I've ever seen on people's bodies when I see uncontrolled yeah. inflammation going on. Now, I was kind of hoping you weren't going to mention that because then, you know, people invariably are going to, first thing that pops to their brain is like, well, what if I took like an NSAID before a workout or after a workout? Like you're saying, if I eliminate inflammation, I'm going to reduce my gains. I'm going to reduce my adaptations. Like what about NSAIDs or ice baths or fish oil or vitamin C, like any one of these things that has been associated with reduced inflammation. And so we have data on all of this, <laughs> uh, fortunately. So we don't have to like opine eloquently, giving opinions based on absolutely nothing. Uh, with respect to NSAIDs, for example, yes, in the short term, there seems to be a reduction in muscle protein synthesis. And when I say short term, I mean like hours after a workout. But when you look for like weeks and months and like, hey, do these people grow less muscle mass? Do they get, you know, achieve less improvement in strength? The answer is no. It seems to have really no effect there at all. And in fact, almost the opposite relationship has been found. People are able to do more training if they otherwise would have pain that's controlled by NSAIDs. Yeah, I think I think the issue there is, of course, that inflammation here that uh, even though I framed it as, you know, on or off, it's not a binary thing. And these drugs like taking NSAIDs, taking naproxen or something like that is not, it would be difficult to take enough to like shut it all down yeah, without, without, <laughs> and, without killing you. <laughs> right, exactly. Or like giving yourself an ulcer or, or, or something else bad. But if you can imagine having somebody try to, you know, resistance train, I'd be like pretty confident that if you had them on a very high dose of prednisone, uh, and they were trying to strength train that compared to somebody not on a very high dose of prednisone, that you would probably get better, better improvements if you, if you were, uh, not on that drug. And so I think it's a matter of degree and potency and dosage and, and things like that. Yeah. That's what you see actually with like these sort of ice baths, uh, like when people do a lot of, of that stuff, uh, immediately post-workout, you see an attenuation sort of of their, uh, muscle protein synthesis, muscular hypertrophy sort of trajectory that, that seems to be somewhat well supported. Although again, you're looking for long-term data and that doesn't really exist yet for cold immersion therapy. Um, same thing with fish oil, what people are looking at what, what, uh, researchers are looking at is like short-term data. And I just cannot care about what happens to muscle protein synthesis rates and muscle protein breakdown rates in those first few hours after a workout, because while interesting, maybe I just don't know how well that correlates to long-term outcomes. And the reason I say, I don't know is because you see data all over the map with respect to short-term outcomes and it not being congruent with long-term outcomes. And so, yeah, when people are like, well, what about vitamin C after work? I'm like, well, one, why are you taking vitamin C in the first place? Like that's, that's my first question. And then two, uh, that maybe seems to reduce muscle protein synthesis rates, but long-term outcomes, eh, the best data we have is like case control type studies, which I, it's hard to put your put a lot of stock in that same thing with fish oil i'm like again why are you taking fish oil in the first place <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. but uh and i think we discussed those things adequately in the uh, fish oil and the vitamin c or sorry in the uh, multivitamin sort of podcast so anyway 
that was a long sort of introduction on like what inflammation is, what are some of the biomarkers that we'll uh, actually be talking about. So let's pivot and start talking about the diet inflammation index. So Austin, before this podcast, before uh, we I actually talk, we actually talk about it, do you what do you, do you know much about the diet inflammation index? Uh, I would not say I know it in, in intimate detail. I have heard of it as a concept, and I can probably, you know, guess what sorts of features of a diet would be viewed more favorably through the lens of the diet inflammatory index, and which might be, and which might be viewed less favorably. Let's see. <laughs> so. Let's see if you're right. Yeah. Okay. So what sort of what sort of uh, I'll give you a clue that the diet inflammatory index is based off of food frequency questionnaires assessing 45 different nutrients that can be pres uh, present in the diet. Um, what sort of nutrients or food factors, if you will, would be associated with a pro-inflammatory uh, sort of response and what would be uh, associated with a, an anti-inflammatory uh, effect? Yeah, I think that if I defaulted back to our general guidelines for a health-promoting diet, those would likely, you know, given given the breadth of data that we have showing favorable, you know, health responses from the usual dietary pattern that we've talked about a lot, where there's, um, you know, generally lean protein sources, if you're going to include animal sources, uh, not those especially high in saturated fatty acids, biasing towards fish and marine sources, if you're not including those protein sources from from plant-based sources are great plenty of vegetables high fiber intake uh some of the uh fats would be biased more towards unsaturated sources in general um and then plant like flavonoid type sources and and, and those kind of uh, biologically active uh nutrients from those sorts of uh foods as well should feature prominently so generally you know a diet that tends to be prominent with plant-based sources, including pro you know, uh, protein from those sources, lean proteins in general, low, lower in uh, animal-derived saturated fats, higher in polyunsaturated fats, higher in fiber, and then a general variety of food sources would be what I would predict uh, would be viewed more favorably. We can just shut the podcast down now because we're just- Sounds great. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's talk about this. The Dietary Inflammatory Index, the DII as it were, was developed to provide a quantitative means for assessing the role of diet in relation to health outcomes, ranging from blood concentrations of inflammatory cytokines to chronic diseases. Now, this started in 2004 at the University of South Carolina, basically trying to link the diet to markers of inflammation like IL-1 beta, IL-4, IL-6, IL-10, TNF-alpha, CRP, etc. It used a food frequency questionnaire to assess the intake of specific nutrients like the macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat, alcohol, fiber, etc., along with vitamins, minerals, herbs, and so on. A food frequency questionnaire basically asks people to indicate what types of foods they eat and how often they eat them. And from this, each nutrient was assigned a value, either anti or pro-inflammatory, based on existing data connecting it to changes in inflammatory biomarkers. So they ascribed uh, something... Uh, a value of negative one uh, if the uh, effects were anti-inflammatory. Um, so it decreased sort of inflammatory markers and it assigned a, a nutrient, the marker of positive one, if the effects were pro-inflammatory. So it increased certain inflammatory markers and they gave it a value of zero if the dietary variable produced no change in the inflammatory marker. The interesting thing is when they were determining if a particular nutrient or parameter was net pro or anti-inflammatory, because there's just a lot of conflicting studies one way or the other, uh, the value ascribed to each parameter was weighted. So effectively what they did is they looked at the total number of studies that uh, you know found some sort of pro or anti-inflammatory outcome. And then what they did is they took like the number of studies that were anti-inflammatory, divided it by the total studies, and then subtracted from that the ratio uh, st of studies that were pro in favor of pro-inflammation, increasing inflammation, over, again, over the total studies to get a sort of net effect. Uh, so trans fat was found to be the most inflammatory sort of parameter here, whereas things like saffron, niacin, and thyme <laughs> were considered the most anti-inflammatory. Now, there's been two iterations of the diet inflammatory index, which is why I called it D2. I actually don't know if uh, people in the research world call it D2, but in my brain, there's like dietary inflammatory index number one and dietary inflammatory index number two. But the initial one, number one, did not get much traction, mostly because it was felt that this initial iteration over or under underestimated the uh, any inflammatory influence as it was not compared to any sort of reference level of intake for like quantity. It's basically like, oh, you ate this food and you eat it this many times a week, but it wasn't like how much of the thing did you eat, you know? So the second improved version, which is 
dietary inflammatory index two, which I call D2. It still uses the food frequency questionnaire um, to identify the food parameters of interest consumed by the individual. And now these are compared to normative data from referent populations. And there are 11 different data sets that they've sort of compiled. And then each parameter, again, is given a score based on the individual's intake compared to this normative reference level data. They additionally added three years of data uh, measuring the anti or pro-inflammatory effect of each nutrient or uh, dietary parameter. So the literature basically doubled in size to uh, almost 2,000 articles. And again, uses 11 different data sets from around the world to establish means and standard deviations of these 45 food parameters with respect to quantity of ingestion. Uh, again, the you get a score, just a numerical score here, and the more uh, anti-inflammatory, so the better, I guess you could say, diet is more negative and the pro-inflammatory being positive, uh, it, that gives you a higher number. So the maximal um, pro-inflammatory diet is positive 7.98 and the maximal anti-inflammatory diet is negative 8.87. So in general, higher numbers are more inflammatory, lower numbers are more anti-inflammatory. And every time I say the phrase more anti-inflammatory, I'm like, there's got to be a better way to phrase this. You know, it's just like, and then even reading the literature, you're like, wait, it's more negative. It's got to be more bad. Better. Yeah. And that's just complicated because just saying less inflammatory does not convey the same point as more anti-inflammatory. So you kind of have to say it the way it is, you know, and I'm like stuck in my own <laughs> sentence structure. I hate it. Okay. So do higher uh, dietary inflammatory index scores, which would be indicative of higher inflammation, correlate with biomarkers of inflammation? So that's question number one. Like, does this thing actually do its job? One of the uh, major studies showing this has just under 2,000 participants. And uh, basically, they they looked at their food frequency questionnaires and ascribed them into a, like an anti-inflammatory group. They assigned them to an anti-inflammatory group or a pro-inflammatory group. Um, the median score for all people in this study was negative 1.28, so slightly anti-inflammatory, I guess, if that's a term that's that's legit. Um, and then the anti-inflammatory group ranged between negative 5.10 to negative 1.28. So pretty big range there. And then the pro-inflammatory group ranged from negative 1.28 to positive 3.68. So more inflammatory dietary pattern. The intake was pretty similar uh, for these two dietary patterns as far as percentage-wise from different macros. About a third of all calories came from fat, about half of the calories came from carbohydrates, and about 18% came from protein. Now, with respect to inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein um, was higher in the pro-inflammatory group, 2.45 versus 2.19 milligrams per liter. IL-6 was higher in the pro-inflammatory diet at 3.02 versus 2.72 in the anti-inflammatory dietary pattern. TNF-alpha was also higher in the pro-inflammatory group at 6.51 versus 6.23 in the anti-inflammatory group. And it should be noted, though, that the pro-inflammatory group had higher rates of smoking, lower levels of physical activity, and also had more metabolic syndrome. So all of those things in and of themselves can cause more inflammation in the body. However, it should be noted that the authors did their due diligence here, and the, they had pretty similar rates of obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and high blood pressure. So they did, they did a pretty good job here as far as like randomizing people um, for, their, for the study set, but it did appear that, um, yeah, those in a more pro-inflammatory diet did have higher levels of these inflammatory biomarkers, so it does seem to check out. Uh, if you're wondering what are the biggest differences in the dietary pattern between the anti-inflammatory diet and the pro-inflammatory diet, it's mostly fruits and vegetables and ultra-processed foods. Unsurprisingly, people with the anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, those with the lower scores, the more negative scores, tend to have much, much higher, uh, far greater servings of fruit and vegetables, like nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day compared to the low uh, or the pro-inflammatory group which was just over five servings per day. And then the anti-inflammatory dietary pattern also consisted of far less uh, ultra-processed foods, particularly high, high sugar, high fat foods, and sugar-sweetened beverages. Those were all much, much higher in the pro-inflammatory group. So again, we could have just stopped the podcast 15 minutes ago. Because <laughs> <laughs> already terribly surprising results here. No. Okay. So it does look like that these this dietary inflammatory index does indeed correlate with biomarkers of inflammation, but I can't get too excited about that because I'm like, all right, it's just some numbers on paper. What I want to know is, do, do these numbers, do these dietary patterns also correlate with different disease outcomes? 
This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. Uh, so first off, we'll actually start with colorectal cancer. And so what they did is they basically followed people uh, with different dietary patterns, some with higher, some with lower dietary inflammatory index scores, and looked at the risk of colorectal cancer over the years. Those with a higher dietary inflammatory index score, so more pro-inflammatory, had a 40% greater risk compared to the lowest category uh, folks uh, uh, from the dietary inflammatory index. A one-point increase, so more inflammation from the dietary pattern, increased colorectal cancer risk by about 7%. With respect to all-cause mortality, this comes from the Whitehall 2 data set. This is out of London, just over 10,000 participants, and uh, this was collected from like 1991 to 2009. And they basically broke people up into different tertiles, so that's just thirds, based on their the uh, inflammatory, uh, the dietary inflammatory index. And so those in tertile three had the most inflammatory, the highest inflammatory index score, and those in tertile one had the lowest uh, inflammatory index, so the most anti-inflammatory, as it were. The biggest difference in the dietary pattern was that those in tertile one ate way more fiber. Then those in tertile three, 34 grams of fiber per day on average compared to 18 grams of fiber per day. And so, Austin, if I had you predict, hey, what's the all-cause mortality risk going to look like for people eating a lot of fiber versus a little fiber? And you knew nothing else about them. What would you guess? Yeah, that's someplace where I would definitely be biased towards the high fiber intake uh, population yeah. here. Yeah, so in this case, tertile one had a 47% lower risk of all-cause mortality than tertile three. And you're like, all right, was this the diet? dietary inflammatory index predicting this sort of outcome? Was it the fiber intake in and of itself or something else? Yeah, this index is awfully complicated and like respect to the people who came up with this and like this very elaborate scoring system and collecting all this data from like thousands of people across all these different countries. But at the same time, I can't help but think like, we just measured how much fiber they had and we could predict that too. <laughs> That's what like when we, when I joke about coming up with like a gain score and then validating it, yeah. that's what this would be. Yeah. Be like we took 4,500 studies and we're able to discern <laughs> this. And it's just like, okay, can't you just ask like, you know, what's, what's your deadlift and what's your fiber intake? And then and what's your waist circumference? Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. What's your VO2 max? What's your deadlift? What's your fiber intake? And I could, that's your gain score. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk about uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or heart disease incidence and heart disease related mortality and the dietary inflammatory index. So for every one point increase in the dietary infl- uh, inflammation index, so it's more inflammatory dietary pattern, there's an 8% greater risk of heart disease incidence and mortality, which again, seems pretty impressive. But to go back to your point, Austin, I don't, I don't know that I would want to go through the trouble of actually assessing somebody's diet inflammatory index. Uh, Similar relationships are seen with depression as well, although the data is not as rock solid. Some studies show reduced odds of depression with a lower uh, uh, inflammatory score on the diet inflammatory index. Others show no difference. And uh, 
some others, uh, especially when they're measuring like recurrent depression risk, only show benefits in women, um, but not in men. And this was probably one of the more interesting things I found when doing some research for this podcast. The authors state in this particular study, looking at recurrent depression and diet inflammatory index scores, that the results suggest that markers of inflammation are not shaping the association between the diet inflammation index and recurrent depressive symptoms, meaning that the dietary pattern was what it was, and maybe that was indicative itself of like people's depressive, uh, recurrent depression risk, but not necessarily changes in the inflammatory biomarkers, which then goes to suggest like, well, why are we measuring the these sort of uh, biomarkers anyway? I don't know that people are doing that in depression regularly, uh, not to my knowledge, but I'm sure somebody somewhere has recommended that at some point. Uh, for cancer, most common cancers uh, examined with respect to diet inflammatory index are colorectal cancers, breast cancers, lung cancers, and prostate cancers. And in general, those eating the most anti-inflammatory diet uh, tend to have reduced risk of cancer risk and uh, cancer-related mortality. Bone mineral density, there does seem to be a small benefit from eating an anti-inflammatory diet with respect to not only fracture risk, but also bone mineral density. Same thing with osteoarthritis. Some interesting data on sleep, the wake wake time after sleep onset tends to increase with a more inflammatory diet, inflammatory index score. Don't know what the mechanism, what that would be there, but as complicated as it is to sort of not only measure different parameters of sleep, but also like affect change in different parameters of sleep, I'm not super confident on that relationship. And again, can you imagine if you went into like a sleep specialist and they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to measure your CRP and your IL-6 and then adjust your dietary <laughs> pattern to manufacture changes in those parameters because that's what's going to unlock your sort of sleep potential. I mean, that sounds very much like the kind of thing a biohacking, like, you know, longevity guru might do to make you feel like, you know, they're experts in doing and doing a ton of, you know, data-based things for you, only ultimately to come up with the same, you know, dietary recommendations at the end of the yeah, yeah <laughs> at the yeah. end of the consultation how but. is this different than if, yeah. <laughs> this now with respect to weight loss this was probably the most interesting thing that i found here okay so this was uh, uh basically a study on exercise al alone versus nutrition alone versus nutrition and exercise changes versus controls for weight loss in women it was a one-year-long randomized controlled trial and again they compared diet only versus exercise only versus diet and exercise versus control who didn't do diet or exercise on weight loss and different biomarkers of inflammation and breast cancer in just over 400 uh postmenopausal women with overweight they used the diet inflammatory index to assess the inflammatory potential of the diet and its effect on these biomarkers over this whole year-long period the diet was 1,200 to 2,000 calories per day, less than 30% of uh, calories were from fat, and they basically manipulated the calorie intake to achieve 10% weight loss by six months and then maintenance thereafter. There were no specific foods or dietary patterns prescribed. These folks had uh, at least two meetings with a dietitian. Exercise in the exercise only and the diet and exercise group uh, was aerobic training only, 45 minutes per week, five times per, or 45 minutes for each session, five times per week. Um, as far as what was the diet in, uh, inflammatory index at baseline, it was about negative 2.03, so slightly towards the anti-inflammatory side, and it ranged from negative 2.41, so more anti-inflammatory in the exercise-only group, to negative 1.6, uh, so again, still anti-inflammatory, but less so in the control group. At baseline, it was correlated with IL-6 only, but no other measured inflammatory marker at baseline correlated with the dietary inflammatory index score. Over the year, the dietary inflammatory index scores dropped, became less inflammatory in all groups. The only groups that showed a statistically significant drop compared to the controls was the diet-only group and the diet plus exercise. The diet-only group further decreased their diet inflammatory index score by 104%. It went down by an additional 1.94 uh, points. And the diet and exercise group... Um, further decrease their diet inflammatory index score by 1.73, which is an 84% decrease. Now, the diet and exercise group lost the most body fat, and they had the biggest change in their BMI, the biggest reduction in BMI. And after adjustment for weight change, the 12-month changes in the diet inflammatory index were no longer associated with changes in IL-6 or C-reactive protein, meaning that, in general, weight change had a more marked effect than the diet inflammatory index changes on biomarker changes. So weight loss in general just tends to reduce inflammation because body fat in and of itself tends to be pro-inflammatory. And if you lose more of it, that's going to have a much more marked change in these 
uh, inflammatory biomarkers than the dietary inflammation index itself. Yeah, if I had to summarize that, it's that the effects of weight loss just dwarf the effects of just food substitutions while maintaining a, you know, a higher level of, of, of body fat uh, for the purposes of inflammation. And I would say probably for a lot of different health outcomes. Totally. It's analogous to the GLP-1 sort of changes that you can achieve through dietary pattern change. People are like, ooh, if you eat more protein and more dietary fiber, GLP-1 is going to go up a little bit. And you're like, I mean, that's true. But when you compare that to giving people GLP-1 receptor agonists yeah. like Wagovi and like Ozempic uh, uh, and stuff like that, those changes are so much greater. It just dwarfs any sort of dietary pattern change that you can make. Yeah, the other the other good example of this, and I think we talked about it back when we did a fatty liver ep episode, but there are certain food-based substitutions that you can make to improve fatty liver disease. So there's evidence that, you know, substituting poly, you know, unsaturated fat sources um, uh, and, and and subbing out uh, saturated fat sources uh, is is one strategy that has been shown to reduce the uh, severity of, of fatty liver disease, but weight loss dwarfs those effects. And so you could be consuming plenty of saturated fat in your diet. And if you're losing weight, you'll probably still have uh, improvements in your fatty liver compared with staying at the elevated body fat level and just swapping out some of your fat sources. Yeah. Yeah. So if you did want to optimize your dietary inflammatory index score, how would you do that? So what sort of dietary pattern lowers this sort of diet inflammatory index score? Yep, getting your lean protein from animal and plant sources, avoiding red meat, particularly processed red meats, eating a diet that's high in fiber from whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and legumes or beans, and it's low in refined grains, low in foods with added sugars and ultra-processed foods, including added sugars, added sodium, and added fat. Again, low in saturated and trans fats, high in polyunsaturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids. These are all the same dietary pattern recommendations we've made for a long period of time. As far as it being investigated directly, to dietary patterns, a dietary pattern that's high in fat, oils, processed meats, fried potatoes, salty snacks, and desserts have high diet inflammatory index scores and high levels of CRP and IL-6, whereas diets high in whole grains, fruits, nuts, green leafy vegetables, fish, dark yellow, or cruciferous and other vegetables have low diet inflammatory index scores and low levels of CRP and IL-6 independent of demographics and lifestyle factors and waist circumference. And also they were not further modified by race or ethnicity. Overall, anti-inflammatory foods tend to be colorful, nutrient dense, and low in calories, whereas pro-inflammatory foods tend to be white, colorless, nutrient sparse, and high in calories. Again, I don't know that we needed a whole podcast to really investigate this, but people do ask about inflammation with respect to diet all the time. So here we are. You guys did this. There is a, a sort of diet inflammation index tool that I will link in the description. You can actually go in and search for different foods and it will tell you how, you know, what its inflammatory index is. And you can pick multiple foods, multiple ingredients and kind of see if you wanted to compare eating a cookie versus eating egg whites. It's like those stupid things on social media. It's like, did you know that you'd have to eat 15 egg whites to get the same amount of calories <laughs> as like a Snickers bar? It's like, yeah, this sounds like a, that sounds like a great tool to develop an eating disorder, but <laughs> do, do whatever you want, folks. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, people, you know, are like, well, how do I calculate my dietary inflammatory index score? I'm like, well, you can't, you can't, the, the, it's like a black box. I did try, I went through so many different papers to try to figure out like, how do they actually do this? And I can get you the food frequency questionnaire. I, I can I can do that, and I can link you to kind of some of the 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 software stuff that they they've used, but I can't access it, and I don't know that you can either. So it's kind of like I don't know what you would do with this information. So let's summarize this: the diet inflammatory index may be good for comparing the inflammatory potential of a diet where food frequency questionnaire data exists and inflammatory markers are captured, but I'm not really sure why this matters. In other words, should we really care about inflammatory markers independently of actual clinical outcomes or disease modification? Like maybe in short-term studies where you can't follow people for long enough, you might be able to predict sort of changes in trajectory based on the inflammatory index. But it also may be more confusing than helpful because like small changes in these inflammatory biomarkers may not actually mean anything. So I don't know. What do you think about that? What is the sort of use of this index? Yeah, I think that Inflammation in general as a phenomenon of the immune system is just mind-blowingly complicated. And not all inflammation is the same. There are so many different potential inflammatory pathways and mediators and influences on it. And like I said, respect to the folks who did all this work to try to pull this stuff together. But I still feel like um, it is it is a very 
primitive way of looking at these effects via biomarkers that uh, only give you a tiny fraction of the picture of like immune system and inflammatory activity. And so, uh, yeah, not super enthralled by this concept. <laughs> yeah. And to your point, I'm, I'm not sure that a dietary inflammatory index score is actually useful from either health or science communication standpoint. Like, would people respond better to inflammatory labeling or knowledge? Like, imagine if on food packages, it was like a low inflammatory food. It's like, well, what does that mean? And are people more likely to buy that? If so, you could make an argument that that might be useful from a public health standpoint. But I think uh, due to the data we've seen on like calorie labeling in restaurants and, and, and fast food places, that that is not really likely to make a big change. There are a variety of different like public health efforts in different countries looking at different ways of labeling things to you know promote or discourage certain types of intake. We've talked about some of these before, um, even like simple stoplight type systems at the hospital cafeteria where I work. There's like a little stoplight system that that, that they use for for these things. Um, and so, you know, whether such a system needs to be based on a dietary inflammatory index score or just based on the overall body of nutrition evidence that we have. Because we ultimately came to the same conclusion about what a health-promoting diet looks like when viewing it through the lens of this dietary inflammatory index, as well as through the broader body of nutrition science research anyway. And so the, the, the way you get there does not seem to matter so much because we've landed in the same place. And if you wanted to label foods as recommended more for or, you know, more against um, based on either factor, like go for it. But I don't, yeah, I agree that I don't think people are going to respond better when they see like a minus 0 0.78 on their food because of the DII score uh, as much as a simple like green is yeah, good right. something kind of thing. Yeah, I'm skeptical that this would actually change dietary pattern intakes you know, what people actually eat. And then further, you know, examining nutrients in relation to disease outcomes, like in isolation, tends to yield weaker relationships compared with actual food or dietary pattern sort of stuff. So I'm not sure that this is super beneficial from like assessing what sort of dietary pattern improves disease outcomes either. It's just more likely to me that dietary pattern data is more useful. Like what are people eating on average? And I don't know that that's accurately reflected in the dietary inflammation index compared to like how many servings of fruits and vegetables are they eating per day? How much saturated fat are they eating per day? What's their total calorie intake? What is their weight trajectory? What's their BMI doing? Things of that nature, which it's like if you have that data already, just use that. We don't need to use a surrogate marker. You know? Yeah, when, when we're taking a dietary history on a patient or a client and we're just like, tell me what a typical day of eating looks like for you. That's a common way I might phrase that question. And they're describing the, the food items. I'm kind of doing a mental accounting for them, you know, contrasting what they're telling me against the general principles that we're recommending for in terms of a health promoting diet. I'm not doing mental arithmetic or jotting down notes to plug it into a DII calculator um, to determine the inflammatory nature of it. Even though, again, if I did do that and put it through the DII calculator, I would still end up coming to a similar Same pattern thing. that I've yeah. ended up recommending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, there's other sort of, uh, I guess, like food quality sort of analysis or you know, uh, sort of categorization, like the healthy eating index, for example, is another one that exists, and it's like. It's the same stuff. It's like how many servings of fruits and vegetables do you have per day compared to how many servings of refined grains or like foods with added sugars versus, you know, uh, whole grains. It's like, I don't know that I need a proprietary sort of score. Imagine that if that entered like your your planning phase for for an individual, you're like, well, your <laughs> HEI score is, is 50 and our goal is 65. So we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. And it's like, I didn't need to do that to plug it into the calculator. I could just, I just knew that was where we were going already. Um, okay. Further, while research shows that dietary inflammatory index scores, but not individual foods are associated with inflammatory markers in the general population, the dietary pattern clearly matters the most. For example, the biggest differences between low and high inflammatory score, scores tend to be processed food intake being much higher in the pro-inflammatory diets or the higher scores, fruit and vegetable intake tend to be higher in those with lower dietary inflammatory index scores, more refined grains, red and processed meats, also full fat dairy tend to be much more uh, regularly consumed in those with higher or pro-inflammatory diets. And whereas more fish, whole grains, low fat dairy tend to be more highly consumed in those with lower scores or more anti-inflammatory dietary patterns. I'm just not sure that it, the diet induced inflammation drives disease or bad outcomes in and of itself either. Or if just the differences in inflammatory markers are due to other mechanisms. So for example, 
weight change is a huge driver, dwarfing the sort of effect that you can get from changing the dietary pattern. And when corrected for, much of the changes in inflammatory markers no longer correlate with disease. And so it's like, are we really tra tracking how people respond to a particular dietary pattern or like how well they're able to adhere to a dietary pattern? I, I don't know. And that, that data doesn't really exist. So overall, I just wouldn't use the diet inflammatory index to micromanage somebody's diet or even make food recommendations. I would also not claim that a particular food is inflammatory because this is all super complicated. Food is far more complex than the sum of its isolated nutrients. We already know that to be the case, like the food matrix effect. People are like, oh, it's the flavonoids or tocopherols or vitamins in this particular fruit or vegetable or the, the fiber content. It's like, yeah, well, if you try to supplement those things in isolation, you tend to see no effect or like little effect. That's because eating the actual apple, for example, is far more beneficial than eating the things that are in the apple in isolation. The sum uh, is greater than the, the sum of, of the what's in the food is greater than its individual parts. And finally, I would not use the inflammatory potential uh, of nut the nutrient to guide dietary pattern per se over the dietary pill pillars that we've already discussed eating the correct amount of energy, getting lean protein from poultry, fish, dairy, and vegetable sources, less red meat, particularly processed red meats, uh, favor vegetables, fruits, legumes, and whole grains over refined grains, limit added sugars, limited ultra-processed foods, including added sugars, and favor polyunsaturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids over saturated fats, especially those from red meat. I don't know that we needed to do a whole podcast on it, but 60 minutes later, here we are. I mean, you're telling me that, uh, you know, questions occasionally roll in on this topic. So check it off the list. <laughs> I think that if you have, uh, you know, anaphylaxis from a severe food allergy, you're allowed to say that that food is inflammatory for you. Shy of that, I probably wouldn't waste uh, brain space <laughs> on this topic. 10 out of 10, agree. All right, that's a wrap on episode 255 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me on this podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Remember everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Mm -hmm.